Uh, so tonight we bring us back, or the Lord brings us back to First John uh, chapter two, verses one and two, and this is our our third week in the book of First John, and I think it's been a pretty amazing study so far. I know the Lord's really worked in my heart. Last week I was I was a big ball of of a mess um, trying to preach last week's sermon because I had to get right before the Lord and confess my sins that I was holding in my heart. Um, I know it, it's really worked on me. And, and, and I want you guys to remember this, that, that the battle cry of 1 John is, is his battle against false teachers. And remember, he's going up against these Gnostic false teachers who claim to have a special knowledge, a, a higher revelation from God. That word Gnostics, the root word is Gnosis, which actually means knowledge. So they're claiming that I got this, this higher knowledge from God that nobody else has. There's cults like that today. They also deny Jesus in the flesh. And some even deny that, that he was God at all. And to piggyback kind of from last week, some of the false teachers claimed that they were without sin. And some had claimed even that, that it didn't matter if you sinned, that it had no effect on your spirit, that it had no effect with your relationship with God. And some went as far as even to claim that, that you had to deal harshly with your body because of sin. You had to abuse your body, to, to mistreat your body. And so it's one huge tangled up ball of lies that that john's just kind of untangling and weeding out and it left the churches in asia minor very confused so i want you guys to know that the apostle john writes this letter mainly for assurance Um, assurance to his teaching and the testimony of christ assurance to the truth of the gospel of christ and his fullness assurance of the believer's salvation and ultimately assurance of the unbeliever's condemnation it's a beautiful masterpiece, and I think it's something uh, that Pastor Rick and I believe is very um, crucial, very beneficial to walk through in these early stages of our church opening up. We want to make sure that you guys, that we're starting off on the right foot, and the right foot is Jesus. So please join me today in the, in the reading of God's Word, First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that you made a way that all could be saved, that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, we just pray for your mercy in this place, that you would free me up as a preacher that you'd help me to preach as a man on fire to a dying people. I pray, God, that you'd open the hearts of the hearers tonight, that they'd be challenged, that the Christian would be challenged, that the unbeliever would be convicted, that, God, you would draw them through your word to your son, Jesus. It's in Christ's name, amen. So I kind of, if you would allow me to, I really kind of want to paint a picture in your head before we dive off um, into, into this section of Scripture so let's say, for instance, that you're kind of you're going out on a night on the town. You you want some good food, right? So let's say last night I ate ramen and dumplings. So you have a craving for some authentic ramen and dumplings. So you jump in your car and you cruise down to Exarban Village, and, and like I said, you're going to the inner rail. You're going to get some nice momos and and which is dumplings and and some ramen. I love the place. Everybody else hates it, but as you get there, you pull up in the parking space just right off the road. And you realize that it's pretty busy. It's pretty lively outside, right? And so as you're coming up to the fire pits that they have set around with the Jenga blocks, you see it's, there's like probably 100 people out there sitting around the fire. They're socializing. They're playing Jenga. They're hanging out. 
And as you approach the front door and you go to open it up, you hear a scuffle behind you. And you see a man fighting with the woman over her purse. He's mugging her. And you turn around and you're going to head towards the man to, to stop her. And a group begins to form and, he, and they're coming to stop this man as well. And about that time he pulls out a gun and he shoots the woman dead. And he turns around and he wheels the gun at the crowd, firing and, and wounding many more people. Well, the guy grabs, his pur- grabs her purse. He gets in his car, which is parked underneath the surveillance camera, and he heads home. It doesn't take long. The people call the police, and it doesn't take long for uh, the police to apprehend the, the fugitive with the purse in hand and, and the pistol. So before long, he goes, to, uh, he goes to court. You know how the court system goes. And before long, he gets arraigned. And the evidence is all brought against him. The prosecutor pulls out the gun with the ballistics report, the purse with his fingerprints on it, the 100 witness testimonies, surveillance footage of him in his car that's registered to him. And on top of all that, there's a tape of an interview where he confesses to the crime. So the judge examines all of this evidence and he says, it's very clear to me that you're a guilty man. But because I'm the judge, I'm going to go ahead and declare you not guilty. So, so the, the victim's party, the, the party of the victim, the family of the victim, they're in an outrage. They're shouting out, we want justice. This is not fair. This is not just. The whole courtroom is in an uproar. We want justice. We want a just judge. So do you see that the judge in this illustration, he, he's no judge at all. He's unfair. He's inconsiderate. He's unjust. He's sinful. Justice is not a word in his vocabulary. He should not be a judge, but a real judge. A just judge would look up, uh, would look at this case. He'd stand up in, in, in outrage and cry at the killer, and he would sentence him to the penalty that he deserved life in prison, the death penalty. There'd be no questions asked. So, looking at the evidence, the confession, and the testimony, any just judge would see the absolute guilt of the man and have no problem giving him the sentence he deserved. So, you guys might ask me, like, that's a pretty crazy story. Why would you tell me such a gross and vivid illustration? The answer is this, because when I heard one like this, I finally understood what it meant for God to be just. I heard an illustration pretty similar to this that a guy had preached, and it rocked me. I finally understood what it meant for God to be just as he preached through a section of Scripture just like this. As you see, God is holy. He's righteous. He's pure. He must pour out his wrath on sin. He must be just in dealing with sin. God is justice. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He must be like the good judge in the illustration that I just gave you and give the guilty the punishment that they deserve due to their crime. And we know that from scriptures that the wages of sin is what? Death. We know that someone must die for the sin that they've committed. We see it played out repeatedly over and over again. That one man brought death into the world and death through sin. So the big question that I have tonight is this, and I want you to keep this in the forefront of your mind as we work through the scripture. And the question is this, how can God be both just and forgiving at the same time? Because, you know, we have to take all of God's attributes and keep them on the same plate as we deal with scripture. We can't just take one of God's attributes and set it aside to deal with the context. We have to take all of God's attributes. How can God keep both attributes of being holy and love while forgiving the guilty sinner. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? If we stood in a courtroom with, with God and all the evidence was brought before Him against us, we absolutely would stand guilty. Amen? 
I mean, we've lied, we've cheated, we've sworn, we've disobeyed our parents. I mean, you name it, right? We've committed adultery. We've all sinned on some level. And all sin is the same as far as it being punishable to hell, to death. We saw that last week in verses 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. It's plain as day. We're guilty. We're sinners. So how can God be justice and forgive us as guilty sinners? How can God be love and rightly deal with mankind? This, this, uh, this uh, old hymn has been on my heart here, and I want to I read it to you. I won't sing. I'll spare you guys that. <laughs> on a hill. Had you killed my moment. <laughs> it's all about the Lord anyways, right? <clears throat> on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and repro- reproach gladly bear. Then, he, then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. And I will cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. That's how God, and just to sum it all up right now, we could close it. That's how God will deal uh, with humanity and be both just and forgiving at the same time. It's through the old rugged cross. <clears throat> so starting in verse 1, let's, let's dive into it. I can't let you off the hook right there. So follow with me as we wade, wade through 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's find the answer to these questions. So my little children, he says... These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. My little children. It's a beautiful statement, ain't it? The last living apostle, the apostle John is not writing just to people, just regular old people, or just to churches in Asia Minor. In fact, he's writing to his own little children. They may not be flesh and blood to him, but but the meaning of this is it's threefold. It denotes the eldership of John. That he's 90 plus years old. He's the last living apostle. And that he is the most advanced and seasoned Christian alive at the time. So this statement, my little children, also includes the spiritual fatherhood of John. That John has been doing discipleship long enough enough that that he has spiritual children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So to him, they're all precious in his sight. So there's a huge tone of endearment in these words, my little children. This is like the relationship that we see with Paul and Timothy, right? We see, we see Paul call Timothy his son in his, in his letters to him. And, and, that, and that's his son in the faith. And, and Paul is Timothy's father. Because there's an unbreakable bond that happens when you disciple somebody in the faith. It's, it's closer than family. Jackson's one, one that I started discipleship with before I left here. And our bond got close. There's nothing in the world that Jackson can't tell me. And there's no truth that I won't keep from him. Sometimes it hurts his feelings, but I'm willing to tell him anything, uh, tell him the truth to keep him from hurting himself, to keep him from falling down along the road of sin. He, in a sense, sorry, Jesse, he's my son, in a sense. He's my spiritual kid. Uh, I, I have a man, in, uh, two men in my life that has poured into me for years since I've been saved. They're like my dad to me, closer to me than my father ever will be. 
because they taught me things that matter, that are eternal. They cared about my eternal state, something my father never did. As a father protects his children, so John is protecting his little flock right here. That's why he calls them his little children. And the last meaning uh, that this statement, my little children, signifies is the pastoral role uh, of John over the churches in Asia Minor. He views him as his little children of his flock. So you can kind of think of a shepherd over his sheep. He's willing to do anything and everything to protect them, to protect his flock, and to nurture uh, his disciples to be disciples who make disciples, right? To, to, that's how he's got son, sons in the faith and grandsons in the faith and great-grandsons in the faith. It's because he's poured into one, and what he's poured into that one has went and poured into the next and poured into the next and poured into the next. He sees his flock much like Rick and I see you guys. Although some of you may be older than me, you're my little children. God's entrusted me uh, to the members here at Waymaker Baptist Church. God's entrusted you guys to me. And I promise you, on that day where I stand before God, I'll have more than I want to be accountable for. I pray that I can handle it right and I'd be a good steward of this. And I know Rick's prayer is the same. See, we've been entrusted to feed you, to protect you, to guide you in the truth, to keep you from harm. It's no light load. It's a serious matter, right? And that's what John's doing here. He writes, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He's saying, my children, my flock, don't believe the things that the Gnostic false teachers are telling you. I'm writing you these things because I know the truth. I'm pointing you to the truth. I'm well experienced. I'm well seasoned. I'm 90 years old. I've been following after Christ a long time. I want to help you. I don't want to hurt you. So how can John say these things I write to you so that you may not sin when previously in this letter last week we covered some of them. Uh, In verses 9 and 10 he told us if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word's not in us. And in the very next sentence in in, uh, chapter 2 verse 1 he says and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. How can he say that we may not sin So what's John indicating here? It's kind of like a a battle of tennis. It's back and forth. It's back and forth. You don't sin. You do sin. You don't sin. You do sin. What is it? So in the context of Scripture here, John's indicating that as Christians, we will sin. We will confess our sins, and God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We're going to fall down. We're going to get hurt. And you know what? We're going to get back up again. However, this does not give us a license to sin. Just because grace abounds does not mean that we take advantage of that grace and sin even more, right? Just because we know that Christ has forgiven us on the cross for our sins, we do not go out and and seek the next sin to to waller in. We don't do it. As Christians, we walk in the light. Like John had told us previously, we do not uh, habitually practice sin. That's what John's writing to his flock and, and what he's saying to us here. He's saying, I'm writing you these things so that you don't believe the lie, that you can sin even more, just because God will forgive you through Christ. That's not a true statement. And people allude to these things like, oh, you, everybody's got a little pet sin in their life. That's not true. People allude to these things that it's okay to say you're a Christian and then go out and, and party and get drunk every single weekend. That's not true. That's not what he's saying. It's not a true statement. By saying that, he's also implying that we have power over sin through the Holy Spirit. Do you guys believe that we have power over sin? Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? We'll get excited about it. I can't tell. <laughs> I can't tell. Just because we're in the flesh, just because we live in the world, 
Just because we battle an enemy, Satan, does not mean we're victims to sin. Does not mean that we're powerless to sin. These are lies of the world. These are lies of the flesh. These are lies of the devil. Our three enemies that, uh, that Brother Jeff had talked about last night. The devil would love us to believe these things. The world would love us to believe these things. The flesh would love us to believe these things. That we have no power over sin. And that's just not true. But what does the word of God say? Let's, let's see what the truth says in Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it, obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We have the power not to sin through the Holy Spirit. Amen. We don't have to allow sin to have dominion over us, and that's a good thing, ain't it? But there are verses... And there is the sad reality that we still will sin as Christians because we live in a fallen world and we're in this nasty flesh. We're in a tent. We will fall down. We will stumble. We won't be sinless, but we will sin less. One day when we meet Christ, there's going to be no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more heartaches. The Son of the Lord, the light of God, will illuminate heaven. There will be no more need for a sun or for a lamp. His glory will shine. There will be no more darkness, no more sin. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to deal with sin anymore. And that's why John wrote the second half to this uh, first verse in chapter 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm not trying to mishandle the word of God here, but you can kind of say it like this. And when anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The advocate is translated as helper. That's how you see it translated in the gospel of John. And it's the same writer. It's the translation's the same. I've looked it up. And it literally means one called alongside. So it's somebody walking alongside of you. Paraclete. It's the helper. In this word, the advocate, we get the picture of a defense attorney. Some of us know lawyers very well, don't we, right? Some of us have had some very good lawyers, and some of us had some very bad lawyers, right? Public defenders. And if we have had an advocate, that means that we stand trial for a crime, right? What is the crime? It's sin on our behalf before God. And though you and I are saved, we're still sinners. But we have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have a defense attorney. We must, safely pl we must safely place our trust in his hands. Charles Spurgeon had said that. So in dealing with this second half of verse 1, I find it most helpful to walk through the text backwards. Just follow along with me real quick. So it's going to kind of read like this. Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate with the Father because we sin. So as we walk this thing backwards, I kind of want to pick apart each, um, each title here that's, that's mentioned. Uh, Jesus Christ and the righteous. And we'll go quick. It's not going to take us very long. Uh, Jesus, the name, Jesus is the name in which we must be saved, right? Acts 4.12. He is the one who became man for my sake, for your sake. He's the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was human, but he's also God. He is the Christ. He is the Christos, the anointed sent forth of God. The only one with the authority to plead on the Father or with the Father on our behalf. Because he's the Father's own appointed. God sent him himself. 
So listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote on this. He can plead as to move the heart of God and prevail. What words of tenderness, what sentences of persuasion will he use when he stands up to plead for me? But more, he is the Christ. That is, he is God's Messiah. Therefore, God would not send him unless he guaranteed him. If God should send into this world a Savior who could not save, then God would have no mercy. God's appointing and anointing of Christ is a guarantee of Christ's success. End quote. He does not lose. Thank you, Lord, for them old heads of the Bible like that. So Jesus Christ is the righteousness. So we covered Jesus uh, Christ is the righteousness. He is the righteousness in which he stands before God and declares that we who have repented from our sins and believed in him as our savior are righteous. He is the white robes of purity that we wear before the father. He's the only reason that we can stand before him because we are clothed in Jesus's righteousness because God no longer, the father no longer sees us as sinners, but he sees his son. He's the one who became sin on our behalf yet knew no sin. He's the one who was tempted on all levels as we are in the flesh, yet did not sin. He's the perfect, sinless, and righteous Jesus Christ, the holy God-man who is our only suitable advocate before the Father because we sin. So moving on to, uh, to verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I had asked you guys, um, how can God be both just and forgiving at the same time? How does that work? How can he really do that? How can God keep both attributes of being holy and love while forgiving the guilty sinner, right? Because a just judge cannot forgive somebody who's guilty. It doesn't make sense. You can't do it. So how can he do it? Well, the answer to that is found right here in the second verse of the second chapter of First John, that he himself, Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate, is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the whole world. The word propitiation, I bet you guys are scratching your head. What does that mean? I know I did for a long time, and I wrestled with this word, and I've spent a lot of days in prayer over this word and study in this word, and it's not a normal word that we would use, right? I could not say, for instance, that, hey, Chris, you were mad at me, but I came and made propitiation, and you forgave me, right? So now we're cool. Nobody would say that. We would never hear that today in this language. Nobody would say, will you propitiate for my wrong that I've done and make it right? It doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't fit into our vocabulary. Amen. Thank you, Lord. He's a pretty big old boy. I seen him beat my father-in-law in arm wrestling one day. It was, it was tragic. Rick is now, he is now a loser now. <laughs> so, okay, to get back on track. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. And so this is the last time I preach, right? <laughs> hey, call the pastor at Westside, see if he needs somebody. I'm coming. I'm just kidding. Uh, so the word propitiation means this. It means appeasement or it means satisfaction. So it, it basically, in, in layman's terms, it means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Then he's able to, I'll, I'll get to it. Propitiation, it has to do with the atonement. And by, uh, by atonement, I mean the blood of Jesus Christ covering the sins of the believer. That is the part of the atonement where God's holiness and his justice, so propitiation is the part of the atonement where God's holiness and his justice are demonstrated through a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. So somebody in place of uh, the just penalty for that sin. So this propitiation, this sacrifice, 
It was prompted by God's love, his mercy, and his grace. And so to cut this doctrine up into bite-sized pieces the best that we can um, in the time that we have, God cannot justify, he cannot declare innocent a guilty person. He wouldn't be God if he could do that. It would make God unjust and it would make him a liar. We know that God is not a liar. We know that he is just. So through Christ on the cross, he made a satisfaction for sin, a propitiation that reconciles all sinners to himself. He's bridged the gap. He's removed all obstacles on his own part. And now God is now able to judge justly because the righteous penalty has been paid on the sinner's behalf through Jesus Christ. He is now able to exercise his love to justify the sinner when and only when, by grace, through faith, they repent and believe. That is propitiation in a nutshell. But what else does he mean when he says, but also for the whole world? Some people would really love to get hung up on this text and this word world, and and I have too. Uh, But what John's teaching here is not universalism. And by that, I'm not saying... Uh, he's not saying that uh, Jesus died for all, therefore all are saved, right? Not everybody's going to get into heaven. We know that, right? We know that there are going, uh, we know that there's going to be unsaved people who on the last day will be sent by judgment into the devil's lake of fire. We know that there's going to be people in hell who rejected Christ, people in whom the blood of Jesus Christ did not cover due to their unbelief, due to their sin. So what is John insinuating here by saying for the whole world? He's saying that the propitiation of Christ, the the satisfactory um, sacrifice of, of Christ, that it knows no boundaries. It has no borders. It's for the Jew and for the Gentile. Black, yellow, red, and white, all are precious in his sight. He means it's for the whole sphere of the world, for mankind whom he seeks reconciliation with. He's implying that the propitiation of Jesus Christ is necessary for the whole world. For all who seek salvation must come through this avenue. There's no other way to be saved. It is necessary for the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 says this, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It very well helps sum up that verse. God has brought salvation to the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and the work of salvation has been accomplished entirely by the Trinity, by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Salvation has been purposed by the Father long ago before the foundations of the world were formed. He had a plan to save us, to save sinners. And it's been accomplished by the Son on the cross when he cried out on the cross of Golgotha, it is finished and it is carried out by the Holy Spirit as he does the work of convicting and regenerating the lost sinner. So as a sinner who was once dead but now is alive, as an ambassador of Christ and as a minister of the gospel, I plead with you guys to be reconciled to God. You have a responsibility in this matter. 
You do have a human responsibility. For what does the scripture say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. and He will exalt you in due time. Be reconciled to him. Why else would he give us a ministry of reconciliation if there wasn't a part that we had to play as far as our human responsibility? Charles Spurgeon, and I'll just say this. This is free because I got it for free. Charles Spurgeon said this. When somebody asked him about God's sovereignty, how God had elected and how it all happened, and human responsibility. How does that all work? How does that take place? And Charles Spurgeon says... They are both true, and I don't have to reconcile friends. You do have a responsibility in the matter. Although salvation is entirely by God, you do have to accept it. Your father can't make you accept it. Your grandmama can't make you accept it. Your pastor can't make you accept it. God will not make you accept it. You have to receive it yourself. It's a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life today, if he's drawing you to him today, I, I wait no more. Don't fight it. Stop white-knuckling it. Call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Please. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the most important decision you could ever make in your life. Don't fight it anymore. So Christian, bow before the throne of God. Confess your sins. Know that the penalty for our trespasses has been paid in the nail-pierced hands and feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the propitiator of our sins. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't allow the devil to speak lies into your head that tell you you're just a sinner. Keep on sinning. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and run back to the cross. He's there waiting for you. The adversary, our accuser Satan, has no grounds to stand on. Jesus Christ, our defense attorney, wins every time. There's not a court case that he does not win. I laid my life down for my sheep. That's what he says. I have lost none. Like I said, don't believe the lies that the world has told you. That you can sin all you want. You're not powerless to it. Submit to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Believe in the power of the advocate, Jesus Christ, who took the wrath of God on the cross for our salvation. Think about what Jesus went through. Think about every step he took with that heavy cross when he fell down. He was out of, he was out of strength. Think about every blow he took to his face and every beating of that whip, every laceration. Think about that and allow that to drive you to live a holy and sanctified life. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for this word. We thank you for propitiating our sins, Jesus. We thank you for being a just God, Father. We thank you for being a loving Father. That you seek that no that 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 you wish that no one should perish, but for all would come to repentance. God, we know that you you don't take any pleasure in the lost person dying, as Ezekiel 18 alludes to. So we pray, God that you would draw in this place those who are not yours. And God, we pray that you would convict the Christians who are in here today that are believing lies, that it's okay to sin. Would you convict them, Lord? Would you draw them to, uh, to confess their sins, to get right before you, to pick themselves up and run back to the cross? Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray your blessings over this place. In Jesus' name, amen.